is either, from my perspective, you can correct me, please, if I'm off, but the ones at least I see are given to either so much silliness and frivolity, or it's just all talk and no listening. You just, typically the format is, is a split screen, uh, oftentimes, if, if, you know, if they're not physically present with one another, and, and they're just, or, or they're, maybe they're live and sitting at, at one, uh, in one studio as it used to be years ago. And, but what you see is, is no, very few, if any, are, are talking to one another. They're just shouting at one another. I can remember years ago, one of our kids, I can't even remember which one, uh, I think it was one of our older ones, um, I was watching some, one of these particular programs, and, and my, my child walked in the room and just wa- wa- looked and saw what I was watching and said, Daddy, why are they, why are they yelling at each other? Um, we, we just so much talking past one another, I guess is the idea. But that's not just true on a screen with the talk shows or on the radio. I think you would agree with me, I hope you would agree with me, uh, with this sobering reflection, and that is that's actually true of us as a society as a whole. We are talking past one another. Um, sadly, sadly, it's, it's almost as though we've been instructed and catechized by the talk shows. It's almost as though we've let that serve as, as the model for the way we will communicate and uh, conduct ourselves one with another. And it's, it's pretty sobering, especially when you consider what ought to be, what ought to be for followers of Jesus, and the stark contrast uh, there. If you have a Bible, I'd ask you to turn with me to Romans 12. Uh, Romans chapter 12 is our, I'll say kind of our text this morning. Um, what I mean by that is, is this, it's actually one verse within that larger passage, Romans 12, 9 through 16, you see it on the screen. Uh, go ahead and be moving there. I'm, I'm actually looking to drill down on one verse uh, within this. Now, in, in case you don't know, uh, Paul, the Apostle Paul, is the author of, of this book. He's, it's called the book of Romans because it's a letter written to the church in, in Rome, it is a, a, to say a mixed congregation would be an understatement in, in term, uh, men and women, young and old, uh, slave and free, civilian and military, rich and poor, Jew and Gentile. It is as mixed as it can possibly be, okay? And, and this is who Paul is writing to. Chapters 1 to 11... It's, it's the, the heights of, uh, some would say it's, it's, it's Paul's magnum opus in terms of his, his, his theological treatise. This is what God has done for us in Christ, chapters 1 to tw- through 11. Chapters 12 and following is, okay, now here's how you ought to live. If you've embraced that, if the, that all being true, this is what it looks like to live a life in response to that. And it's interesting to note that the first thing that Paul addresses in chapter 12 has to do with how we love one another, with how we love one another, with with the community, the fellowship of the believers. That's where he begins. If you miss that, apparently from Paul's perspective, we've missed it all as far as application is concerned. So, Romans 12, verses 9 through 16, and again, we're going to be drilling down in verse 15 and kind of reflecting on the ramifications of that for our day. Hear now the Word of God. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. 
Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. We're going to stop there. Let me pray together for a moment. Oh, Lord Jesus, have mercy on us. Um, we really, uh, if, we have, if we are honest, have to confess before you this morning that in so many sad and tragic ways, we have allowed ourselves to be catechized by an ethic of communication that is governed by the idea of just talking right past one another. And the, the degree to which we listen is to score our next point. Uh, we don't really hear and engage with one another as persons, as people made in the image of God, according to your likeness. Um, we struggle with that in our homes. We struggle with that um, as spouses, as parents, as children, as siblings, as co-workers, as neighbors, as just citizens in a larger community. Uh, we ask that you would have mercy, help us to see what's going on there in the depths of our hearts that's provoking that. And we thank you for this passage and all the other passages we're going to be looking at here in the next few minutes. And we ask that you would change us deeply. We pray in your name. Amen. I'm going to see if you can identify the theme. I'm going to throw uh, four different scenarios at you. See if you can identify the, the, the theme that binds these, these four together, okay? Uh, the first would be, one spouse says to another, you are oblivious to me and my concerns, and there's really no connection here, and you're not even trying for it. That's one. Another would be, a teenager says to their parents, cries out to their, uh, their parents, I don't need a lecture. I just need you to listen just need you to listen. Or perhaps a friend in a, in a friendship that's kind of waning a bit. One friend finally gets the, the, the gumption. Is that a word? The gumption to, to say to the other, I'm here for you all the time. You know that. But you never ask me about my hurt. I'm going to broaden it now cultural, societal level, whether it comes to, uh, to conversations about a coronavirus or about racial injustice, we don't seem to have any ability to do nuance. Uh, we, we jump to conclusions based on our assumptions and presuppositions about the issues. We are, we are set in our stances and not really terribly interested in the common interests, the common desires that we actually share more than we oftentimes realize. 
What do all those things have in common? I said there were four, right? So you've got the marriage, you've got the teenager, you've got uh, the friendship, and then you've got the society. What, what, what's, what's the thing about lack of empathy? A lack of, of, of empathy. A deficit of empathy, if I can put it that way. So um, empathy is what drives compassion. Compassion, if you, if just strictly speaking, is what's understood as, as a feeling with, okay, that moves and motivates you to come alongside another person in their pain and in their suffering. That's, strictly speaking, what compassion is. Well, empathy underlies that. It's what drives that. It's what motivates that. Compassion is feeling with. Empathy, strictly speaking, is feeling into. So it begins before the compassion even can start. In fact, for there really to be any compassion, there has to be some empathy. The feeling into, the ability to imagine and experience the thoughts and emotions of another person, to put yourself there, to feel what they feel. That's empathy, and it's what Paul is calling for in Romans 12, verse 15, where he says, he commands, it's not a suggestion, it's not, well, you know, if you get around. He says we are to rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. It's a powerful statement. It really is worth our, I think sometimes we just fly through that. It just sounds like a Hallmark special, you know, like the tagline of something on the Hallmark channel. But it's imperative that we think through what are some of the ramifications here of, of this admonition, this command to rejoice with those who rejoice and to weep with those who weep. What would it mean to, to empathize one with another in the way that Paul is speaking of here, let me just, if I can mix the metaphors, just pressing in particularly on the theme of the last few weeks. We've been talking about, over the last few weeks, the reality of a spiritual pandemic of, of racism that our nation, our culture is facing and has been facing for longer than we would really care to think about. If I can mix the metaphor, what I would say to coupled with that is that as though that's not bad enough, in the midst of that, we are walking through a spiritual desert when it comes to empathy, the willingness, the ability to feel into and grapple with what someone else is going through, showing them true concern. The, the, the tragedy is, especially for us as God's people, the Lord calls us to be a people of empathy, clearly. He calls us to be a people of empathy. That has to mean we've got to be striving to grow in these things. He calls us to be a people of empathy. We've got to be striving to grow in these things. Now, now how, what would that look like? What would simply have to do with this? If, you've got, if you printed the outline, you can, it's very simple. I'm, I'm relatively a simple guy, simple thinking. So here you go. It has to do with looking at the who of empathy and then the why of empathy and then the what of empathy. Those three things. It's a very simple outline there. And that who and that why and that what, at every point is Jesus. At every point, it's Jesus. Let me show you as we go. So first, the who of empathy. Who is our guide? Who is our model? Who, what is our pattern for what this idea, this concept of empathy would look? Oh, it's none other than Jesus Himself. Jesus, God incarnate, God in the flesh, 
the same one that is spoken of in the Old Testament over the course of centuries, especially the prophets so powerfully, dramatically described. It's, it's Jesus. So if you want to turn with me to Isaiah 40, so many, we could spend the afternoon looking at passages such as this, these descriptions of the true and living God, and then thinking about, oh my word, literally, or, or my God, literally, that this is the Lord Himself, the Lord Jesus. Isaiah 40, verses 9 to 11 Get up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, Behold, your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might, and His arm rules for Him. Behold, His reward is with Him, and His recompense before Him. He will tend His flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in His arms. He will carry them in His bosom and gently lead those that are with young." The Lord here is described not just as a conquering king, He is that, not just as a benevolent benefactor, He is that, but as a shepherd. The good shepherd. And ultimately, this description from Isaiah 40 is about Jesus Himself, the good shepherd. We read of Him in this way in John 10, quite explicitly. In His shepherding care, in the course of His earthly ministry, what are some of the things that we see, this sort of gentleness, the shepherding care coming out? Well, it comes out again and again and again. Again, we don't have but so much time to look at examples, but if you want to look with me at Matthew, so going a few centuries in your Bible to the right, Matthew chapter 9, Matthew 9 verses 35 through 36, you see this, this theme of the way the Lord deals with people. Matthew 9, verses 35, 36, and Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When He saw the crowds, He had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Or just turning a few more chapters in Matthew to Matthew 14, Matthew 14, starting in verse 13. Now, when Jesus heard this, this is the death of John the Baptist, now, when Jesus heard this, He withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by Himself. But when the crowds heard it, they followed Him on foot from the towns. When He went ashore, He saw a great crowd, and He had compassion on them and healed their sick. Did you know? I actually didn't know this till this past week. I was studying up on this. Some 40 times in the Gospels, Jesus is described as looking and seeing people looking and seeing people, really seeing as they really are. Some 40 times we see, we see this. And let me give you one It's quite dramatic, quite, quite poignant. Luke 7. Uh, it's really quite touching here. Luke chapter 7, verses 11 through 15. Soon afterward, He, this is Jesus, went to a town called Nain, and His disciples and a great crowd went with Him. As he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, do not weep. And he came up and touched the bier, and the bearer stood still. And he said, young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak. And Jesus gave him to his mother. Now, 
in that culture, in that time, a mother's greatest joy would have been to have a son. Her greatest sorrow would have been to lose him. And she's already a widow. So in that culture, in that time, in that setting, she's on the, on the, the thin edge of utter desolation. And Jesus sees this. He sees this. He experiences her suffering and enters in and enters in and acts. Enters in and acts. See, Jesus is the very who of empathy. He is our guide. He is our model. He is our our pattern. Any other person you know, if you can, if I was to you know do like a little quiz here and say who's the most empathetic person you know, what's the, or ever known, I, we would just have to say however wonderful and however beautiful that person's life is, theirs is but a dim glimmer of a reflection of the deep wellspring of Jesus' empathy that we find in the midst of our desert. This who is none other than the living Lord Himself. Which is to say, if we just, just starting here, you know, big picture, thinking about these, uh, where we're heading, um, if we have questions as to what it would look like thinking about whether it's a, a, a viral pandemic or a spiritual pandemic or whatever the case may be. We've got questions wrestling with what does it look like to be empathetic in the midst of such a setting. We have but to ask. We have but to ask Him for guidance and help given who He is, the God of empathy. We have but to ask. We don't need to wonder. We have but to ask and to look to Him. We're called to be a people of empathy. Oh, we, have, we need to strive to grow in these things. But that takes us to the second point. It's because it's not enough to talk about the who. We have to talk about the why. We have to talk about the why, the reason we are called to be a people of empathy, the motivation behind that, the cause of, of that. And if I can put it this way, there, there are three, at least three ways to think about this, and I'll, I'll say they're equally important but growing in intensity as we look at these three. And the first reason that the Scriptures tell us, show us, that we are to be people of empathy, I, I hate to just sound so bold, just stating it so boldly, but we're told to. So part of the motivation is simply out of obedience. It begins there. It doesn't finish. Stop there, but we, it is worth considering. Colossians chapter 3, uh, Paul could not be plainer. In, in the imperative, in the command that he gives here, put on then, Colossians 3, verse 12, put on then as God's chosen, one, chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. This here is an appeal to the will, the command, the the, the, the motivation of, of obedience simply because we are told to by the Lord Himself. 
That's partly what, what ought to be driving this. But it, it doesn't stop there. It, it, another thing we need to understand is it's also a, an expression of, of imitation of our Lord, not just obedience to our Lord, but imitating our Lord. And that was alluded to in the Colossians passage. Just as you have been loved, so you also should love one another. If you'll uh, go to John 13, you see some of these imitation passages uh, where we're shown very clearly another aspect of the why uh, here. Uh, excuse me, John, John 13, verses 34 through 35, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So, this is theme of imitation. Or moving over to the book of Ephesians. Um, you have Romans and then the Corinthian letters and then Galatians and then Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians 5 verses 1 and 2. Therefore, be imitators of God. As beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave Himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So again, you see this, this, this concept of not just of obedience because He tells us, but imitation because this is how He's loved us. And so this is something of an appeal not just to the will, but an appeal to the mind, but because we're asking, He's, he's telling us, He's asking us, He's imploring us, think how I have loved you. Now, go do that. But it doesn't stop there. It's not just a call to obedience. It's not just a call to imitation. But it's also part of the motivation here is what I'll call an overflow. And it comes out, of, and this is, this is different than the other two. It stems from the other two, but it's, it goes deeper. This is not just an appeal to, to the will, an appeal to the mind, but an appeal to the motions, the appeal to the heart. How have you been loved? And as you have embraced that, as you have breathed that in, breathed that out, it is your life. It's what's in your, your spiritual lungs. It's the blood coursing within your veins. His mercy, His grace, His empathy that He has shown towards you. You see this in Philippians chapter 2. So you were just in Ephesians. So just go one more book to the right. Philippians 2 Verses 1 to 2, so if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Now, Paul is not here casting doubt as to whether or not these things actually exist in the lives of his readers. He knows that they do. He knows that they do. He's not casting doubt, but he's asking them to connect the dots. He's saying, look, given the fact that these things are, in fact, in place in your life, these other things should be as well. Where there is this root, there ought to be this fruit. And so he's pleading, he's imploring with them on this thing. Well, again, this is the, these are the great whys. Of, these are the great motives. These are the great causes the impetus, the rationale for empathy for the Christian in, in our own lives, one to another. Speaking very practically, let me, let me go in this direction. Guilt as a motivation in the Christian life is never enough. Guilt is never enough. I know for some of you, 
us parents, especially when you're early on, it's like the one tool you had in your toolbox. I, I hate to tell you, but it's not a good tool. Guilt is never enough. Why? Because at best, all it does is address the behavior and never the heart. And never the heart. What then do we need? It has to be something else. It has to come forth from the heart, a changed heart. Pressing in, practically speaking, to the issues at hand, the issue that we've been discussing over these last few weeks, that of racial reconciliation. So, okay, let's just consider the reality that I, as a white man, should be willing to ask my black brother, what is it like to be pulled over because of your skin color? What is that like? What is it like to have to give that talk to your son? What is it like to be looked at suspiciously in the department store or to be dealt with dismissively on the car lot? What is that like? What does that feel like? Now, friends, I recognize that's not everyone's experience. I got that. You don't need to email me about that. But it is the experience of many. And so that cannot be summarily dismissed. So I need to ask that question as a white man to a, another black man. But why? Not out of guilt, unless I've done those things, but out of empathy. Because of this sense of feeling into Motivating compassion because of Jesus. Because Jesus has been so kindly and empathetic towards me and moved towards me, I have to. I'm, it's imperative that I do the same and ask such questions. But not out of guilt, but out of empathy. We're called to be a people of empathy. We need to be striving to grow in these things. But that then takes us to the last question, the last point not just the who of empathy and the why of empathy, but the what of empathy. What would this look like? How would it play out? What does it mean for you, for me, to, to see in this way? To see as Jesus does, to be moved as Jesus is, and to weep. Just back to Romans 12, to, yes, rejoice with those who rejoice, but to weep, to weep with those who weep. What would that, might that look like? Well, let's go to a parable. Um, Luke 10, Luke chapter 10, uh, it's quite stunning, quite striking, Jesus' words here. It's a story I don't doubt that no few of you have read umpteenth times and you are very familiar with. Uh, Jesus, when it comes to empathy, or really when it comes to all of His points, but when it comes especially to empathy, compassion, He does not just tell, but He shows. He's not just show, but He tells, and He does not just tell, but He shows. And He's willing to tell us these stories to help us to, un, to, to grapple and to understand these things. So, this is oftentimes referred to as the parable of the Good Samaritan. Verses, uh, this is Luke 10, verses 25 to 37. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? 
Jesus replied, a man, who was, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise. So Jesus, what he's getting at here is, what does neighbor love? Not just who is my neighbor, but what does neighbor love look like? And this helps us to get at the question, what does it look like to show empathy and to be an empathetic people? Very much tied to that question. So Jesus is showing us something here, and this man, and by extension us, what it looks like to see. That sounds a strange way to put it. I know what it looks like to see, but it's a good way, I think, to put it. What it looks like to actually see. Now, the context of the story, it wouldn't have been a surprise factor at all for Jesus' original hearers to hear that on this Jericho road, there was a guy who was left bloodied and beaten and half dead. That was hardly a surprise factor given its reputation at the time. What was a surprise and really an utter shock was who Jesus casts in the story as the hero, a Samaritan. It was as oxymoronic, it was as ridiculous for a Jewish person in that time to be thinking in terms of a good Samaritan as we might in our day think of a good Taliban. Okay? There was that much, that little love lost between the the, the two parties, okay? So that's that's the shock factor here. The contrast, the contrast that Jesus sets up here, and I'm not going to go into all the details, uh, don't have time to right now, but you can see this so very plainly. The religious professionals, the priest and the Levite, pass him by. They, They leave him as they found him. They just keep going. But the Samaritan, you can see this, I'm going to read it again in verse 33, it's, it's so profound. But, that's that, the word, whoa, that's the contrast being set up here. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. Well, who does that sound like, interestingly enough? The other text that we've looked at, right? It's very much the, can I put it this way, the Jesus formula. When he saw him, he had compassion. Now, think, think of the, the details of how this plays out, just in, in, in the facts of the, of the story. This man interrupts his schedule, or allows it to be interrupted, however you want to think about it. He empties his wallet. He takes the great risk at being misunderstood as a Samaritan man carrying this wounded Jewish man into what had to have been, given the geography, another Jewish town... So his schedule interrupted, his wallet emptied out, and now the risk of being misunderstood. There's great cost, great cost coming to this man and all of us. And the broader lessons are this. It's so easy to look away. 
so easy to look away, so much more comfortable. We can think of all kinds of excuses. So easy to look away and not, not deal with the person in front of us and to think of them, just dismiss them as a problem. So easy for us to look away as opposed to love, as opposed to loving, beginning with that empathy. See, here's the thing. Love, love takes the risk of losing rights and privileges. Parents, can I get an amen? Love takes the risks of losing, just laying them all down, all your rights, all your resources for the sake of of another. It flips everything upside down. The master becomes the servant in the context of love. It's utterly disruptive, love is, empathy is, compassion is. It's utterly disruptive. It's why Jesus tells this story in such a disruptive way. It's almost like a stealth bomber coming in under the radar, and before you know what's happened, he's got you with the conclusion of the, the, the story. This is the what of true empathy. This, this, this is what Jesus is, is showing us here. Lest there be any question as to what real, true spirituality looks like. It's not just something to think about and talk about, but to live out. To live out. Now, there are as many possibilities of applications here as there are wounds in this world. Fair? We only have the time to go and one place, and again, sticking with the theme of these last few weeks. As we're thinking about the questions of racial reconciliation and how to process that, and what might this text tell us in terms of its implications for us, let me, let me just, if I may, make some suggestions as to how this might play out, how, what, the, how, what the shape of empathy might take for you and I. And I'm saying this especially here for us, the white folks in the room, as we move towards and care for those of color, okay? It seems to me that empathy would have to begin with our willingness to listen. Not to assume and presume that we understand the experience of another person a willingness to listen, an openness, an openness to let go of whatever it might be that's proving to be the source of another person's pain, to let go of that and put it away, an openness. So, a willingness, an openness, a humility, a humility ask, to engage, to interrogate our triggers, to ask the hard questions of ourselves, why are we so angry? Why are we so upset? What's going on there? The humility humility to ask such questions of ourselves and to re-examine, be at least willing, willing to re-examine our prior assumptions and positions. And lastly, a commitment. So, a a willingness, an openness, a humility, a willingness, an openness, and a humility 
and a commitment to defend, to advocate, to speak up where we see wrong or hear wrong, and to leverage what we can where change is needed. Are those not possible implications of this parable? As we see the man allowing his life to be disrupted, pouring out his resources, and giving himself towards the need of this other person. I'm not saying they're the only ones, and there's a lot of nuances to everything I just said. I understand that. But things for us to wrestle with and consider in terms of what it means to be a people of empathy. We're called to be that. It shouldn't surprise us that love will be costly, that love might be disruptive. Is it not always? If it's not disrupting, I just wonder, is it love? Is it love? If it's not disruptive, it's if it's not costly. The noble traveler, let me just end with this. The noble traveler is something, this idea, this concept. I'm not going to say myth. That's a little hard. The, the, The idea is that the more you travel, the more you get out there and explore the world, the more it allows you to become more open-minded, kinder, gentler, more tolerant. And Mark Twain was probably the one, as best I understand, who, who really, if he wasn't the first, he most persuasively put this idea forth, okay? And it was in a book that he wrote back in 1869 called The Innocent Abroad. I'll read you a quote uh, from the book. Travel is fatal to prejudice bigotry and narrow-mindedness, and many of our people need it sorely on these accounts. Broad, wholesome, charitable views of men and things cannot be acquired by vegetating in one little corner of the earth all one's lifetime. Mark Twain, 1869. Okay, that sounds great. Let's travel. That'll fix it. However, a story, a recent story in National Geographic poked at that just a little bit. And if you know anything about National Geographic, this is a magazine devoted towards getting you to travel, among other things. Um, But if travel truly were fatal to prejudice, bigotry, and narrow-mindedness, wouldn't more of the 1.4 billion annual international tourists pre-pandemic have made the world kinder and less biased by now? If that was our magic bullet. Now, that's not to say change is not possible. That's, that's That's not the point. That's not the point. It's not to say change is is not possible. Clearly, those of us who have traveled much at all, we do know it has a broadening effect, and that's good. And and research done in in the areas of neuroscience actually shows that the human brain is actually electrically hardwired for empathy. Studies have been done, done on us. Your own experience, my own experience... Studies, other studies from a, uh, psychological uh, studies have, sh- have borne out the reality that, yes, in fact, if you work at it, you can become more and more empathetic. It is possible. Change actually is possible. But what's the best way? What's the best hope that we have with this? The best hope that we have with this is that which goes deepest. And the deepest, without question, is the gospel. The deepest, without question, is the gospel. I'm going to come back to that Stott quote that we read at the beginning of of our time, and and I'm going to read that, shall I say, the revised version 
uh, of that. Jesus never stands aloof from other people's joys or pains. Jesus identifies with us, sings with us, suffers with us. Jesus enters deeply into our experiences and our emotions, our laughter and our tears, and feels solidarity with us, whatever our mood. And that's what fuels love. That's what enables us to be empathetic. He is who enables us to be empathetic. So therein, we come back to, yet again, the who, the why, and the what of empathy that the gospel brings us. Let's pray. Lord, clearly you call us to be a people who rejoice and weep with those who rejoice and weep. You call us to be empathetic. And as we consider these words to this church in Rome, a very mixed congregation, these words written to them, these words written to us in any other true Christian church since. You've made us in your image, in the image of a God who empathizes. And all these things are here in your word. We ask that you would please move within us by your Holy Spirit and to change us. Oh, would you have mercy. May we not be imitators of the world, but of the empathy and compassion that You have shown to us. And may the love that we have embraced from You overflow in a transformative way, overflow into the lives of every person, every person, no matter what on the outside may set us apart, every person. May we be known by our love. I pray in your name. Amen.